Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. And now, and now, prepare yourself for the only talk radio show you'll want to turn up. Crank this thing. Sirius XM Pandora presents the place where your hard rock and metal voice can still be heard. You got your ass, baby. Unfiltered, uncensored, say whatever you want. Hit the record button. Anything can happen, you know. I know that ain't nobody out there came to be mellow tonight, now did you? I say, I say there ain't nobody. I say there ain't nobody not out there that even wants to be a little bit mellow now, is there? Anybody wants to get mellow, you can turn around and get the fuck out of here, all right? This is the Trunk Nation Podcast, Podcast. with host A. Trunk. Hey everybody, it's Eddie Trunk, and this is the Eddie Trunk Podcast, new every Thursday, wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for checking it out, subscribing and listening each and every Thursday. As I tell you all the time, this podcast is just one of the many interviews that I bring you on a daily basis on Trunk Nation, my Sirius XM radio show. Please join me if you're in the U.S. or Canada and check out me every day, uh, bringing you rock talk and interviews Monday through Friday, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time, nightly re-airs, 10 to midnight Eastern, anything you want, anytime you want on the Sirius XM app. And be sure to join me for Trunk Nation on volume. So I am uh, in Cancun at the moment where I am hosting an event called 80s in the Sand. You may hear some noise in the background. It's going great. Had time with Cheap Trick and Tesla already. Great event. And I'll be here throughout the week. But I wanted to get you this podcast, and I got something really special for you. And that is my recent interview with Nikki Six. It is almost two hours of conversation with Nikki about his new book, The First 21, and so much more, plus calls via Zoom from some of our great listeners. Again, this interview originated and aired on my SiriusXM show, Trunk Nation, on volume. If you are a SiriusXM subscriber, there is complete video of this interview now available for you on the app. Another reason to make sure you come on board on Sirius XM. But since the book is out and it hit number one on some charts, I thought it'd be a great time to bring you the entire conversation free to the world to hear right now. My talk with Nikki Six. This happened in Los Angeles. We were both in LA in the Sirius XM studios. Enjoy. So listen, I, I want to ask you this right out of yeah. the gate. A lot of the book, which we're going to get into, is about all the places you lived and mm -hmm. your youth and growing up and moving around. Where we are, L.A., is where you, without question, spent the most amount of yeah, your time. Absolutely. And put down your roots and the band formed and, and all children, of that. Children. Children, everything. Yeah. And you've lived here up until very recently, mm -hmm. 
now living in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. What's it like for you now to be back in LA? You've been here for a bit doing the rounds. How's it feel? I've been here for a long time. There was no, there was no hope in hell in a town of 4,000 people for a kid that was in love with rock and roll and wanted to be in a band that was going to be, even be in a band. There probably wasn't even enough musicians there amongst all of us to form any kind of a band. So going to Los Angeles gave me that opportunity to start playing with other musicians and all that stuff and eventually leading to Motley Crue. Uh, but those roots that I had from living in the country um, were so important to my creativity, believe it or not. So you come down here with all these ideas and you're running with them and you're creating them. But I'm also at the same time, geographically, if you can say that, moving farther and farther and farther out of Los Angeles. By the time I got clean and sober um, in like 88, 89, I had moved to a place called Hidden Hills. I remember when Duff came over one time and he was like, dude, I mean, you live, I mean, it was an hour, hour outside of LA and we're all used to being in Hollywood and going down to the clubs and hanging out and rehearsal spaces. And then I just kept moving farther and farther till finally I was in a place called Thousand Oaks. And really it's its own little bubble out there and really like kind of like a small town. So the jump from Thousand Oaks, Westlake area to Wyoming, which is actually kind of where I started, isn't as dramatic. Uh, to me as it looks on paper to other people. But now you go, you live in Wyoming now. Mm -hmm. You're out of LA completely yeah, now. Yeah, we sold our house here. So the question is like, you're back here now, like mm -hmm. at, in this moment, you're doing rounds, doing press for the book. Mm -hmm. Since you've been away and you actually, for the first time in ages, don't even have a residence here. Yeah, you told it's so you're weird. doing an Airbnb. Like yeah. that, what's that feel like? And what's it feel like for you to be back here in LA now living in Wyoming? Is it feel like are there aspects of it you miss or you're like, yeah. I'm glad I'm out of there? feels kind of stressful with the traffic, and I never noticed that before. And uh, we have the full change of seasons up there. And I remember driving down, since I'm 17 years old, driving down the Ventura Freeway for whatever job I was in or band I was auditioning for, or my life I was living. And I would be like, you know, looking at, you know, the trees on the side of the freeway. And I always thought, you know, Southern California, it's so beautiful. And, and, and it is so beautiful, especially Los Angeles and you get near the beach and stuff. But I noticed that the trees and everything is, they're kind of gray from the pollution, which we don't have up there. Everything's vibrant. The colors are vibrant. So coming down, I notice things. Now, that's not to put Los Angeles down. I think Los Angeles or any major city is a great place for uh, a, a dreamer or a, you know, a, a person with an idea to go to, whatever idea that is, whether you're entrepreneurial or artistic or you want to do uh, acting or, or anything. Um, but there's something for me where I feel at home more than I've felt at home over the last 40 years. But I was busy, even though a lot of people think I'm busier now, well, say I'm busier now than I've been in a long, long time, uh, which is true. But I guess because there's not as much clutter, much mm -hmm. chaos, it's easier for me to think. I mean, this book was uh, conceived and written in, in Wyoming right on our property right there. Was the book a byproduct of the pandemic or were, would you have done this anyway, do you think? 
Well, you know how it is. Like, you know, you put out a couple records and they sell. The record company wants you to make another record. So, you know, I've had a couple successful books under my belt, as well as the Dirt book, but just on my own, two on my own that did really well. Um, And so the offer was always there. And I had kind of been thinking about, well, you know, what is it that I want to write about? And it's important for me not to just throw a book out there for money. You know, I, I don't need to do that for money. I don't think fans deserve that. I think I got to dig deep, come up with something interesting. And I, something that really bothers me, Eddie, is that, you know, a lot of musicians and actors and athletes and other people that work their whole lives and finally get it. And let's just use a musician as an example. They get a couple, you know, records under their belt, a couple of big world tours. And then the bottom falls out of the music industry or their music's not in anymore or their next record just doesn't cut it. And nobody really, and they kind of forget about the band. And when people don't manage their finances as a responsibility to the fans, then they start to do things that are not dignified. They make music that's not dignified. They jump genres. They, they do things that I don't think the fans deserve. So, very early on, I was like, I have a strategy on how to do without to save. So as many times in my life, I was doing without. I uh, wasn't getting as the house that I wanted to get. I didn't go the places that I want to go. I didn't spend the money that I wanted to spend because I was saving it. And it has continued to grow and grow and grow. So when there was some really lean Motley Crue years... I was fine. That's amazing that you were that astute to do that, given how whacked out of your skull you were yeah. until you got sober. Well, it, you were it, still... got, it got put in place early. Yeah. So it was kind of like part of, part of the system. Yeah, when I was whacked out, I wasn't doing as as good. Because notoriously, was most people who have had issues with drugs and substances yeah. are broke because yeah. of that. But the fact yeah. that you still managed to navigate that yeah. is is amazing. Well, you know, when I was when I was using, I blew through a lot of my savings. You know, I was spending a lot of money, but I was also making money. So there's a cash flow thing. So the reason for telling you that is I felt compelled to write some sort of a short book on that strategy and it's working and it's worked for other people, for, for people in the industry. Right. And when we moved to Wyoming, we bought this house on this lot number one on top of this butte. So lucky that we were even able to find this house. The guy who built it was in his late eighties and uh, he wasn't going there as often. The winters are brutal there. And his kids said, you know, Hey dad, you know, maybe put the house, you know, for sale and not going there as often. It just happened. I knew somebody that knew them and I got to buy the house before it even went on the market. Mm. And that there's a lot of property and there's views of the grand Tetons and sleeping Indian and I'm just kind of blown away because even in the nicest area in Los Angeles, I could still see my neighbors or my neighbors driving down the street. So I hadn't had that kind of space since I was a kid. And I've spent a lot of time with my dogs and hiking and going up to the lake and fishing. And I was out on the back of the property overlooking the mountains, which were on right on the other side, Idaho, where the book starts. Right. And that's when the idea came. And, you know, I've, I've said this before, but, you know, I like to document. I've always been kind of a documentarian kind of guy. When I was younger, I was a weirdo. 
because I had the notebook. It's like a guy over there with his hair in his face writing that. And something would happen, and I would um, I would write about it. I don't know why I was like that. And then the more I started reading lyrics, deeper lyrics, storytelling lyrics, whether it was the Dylans or the Ian Hunters and, you know, the Bernie Toppins, I started to connect to that kind of stuff. So I'm constantly pulling over and writing stuff down or putting it in my phone. Like, like it's, it's annoying. Do you still do that? I still do it to this day. I journal, I write. There's notes all over the house. And I came into the house and I just wrote down, I said, to my friends, it wasn't you that was lost. It's just once I started flying, I forgot how to stop. And it kind of summed up, like, all these people that were such a part of the fabric of my life, I haven't talked to them in 10, 20, 30 40 years, I lost contact with people, and I wanted to go back. And then the idea, well, let's go back to the very beginning. And then we started to get some different information than I had gotten that I've been carrying around for a long time. So that was, uh, it was kind of a cathartic. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because uh, the book, again, is about your first 21 years becoming Nikki Six, And I imagine going through these reconnections this early on, as you said, you lost touch with some people, whether it be people you had bands were in with in bands early mm-hmm, on, as you mm-hmm. talk about, or family stuff. I mean, yeah. there going through this, I, I imagine there's some revelations that came to you along mm-hmm. the way about your family and reconnecting with some people and reaching out to some people because there's even like you always had in your mind that your dad was a real bad person. Yeah. But through, did it come through this book that it kind of the revelation was in talking to people like, no, your dad was actually a pretty good dude in some ways. And that felt good to me. I would imagine. Like, cause it felt bad to me. Like, why did I change my name to Nikki six from Frank Ferrana? Well, partially I wanted a stage name and a hundred percent. I didn't want to carry that guy's name on. And I wasn't going to have what I always wanted to be a dad because I didn't have a dad. I had my grandfather, though, was there for me acting as a father. And I'm forever grateful for that. But um, when I have kids, I'm not going to carry on this name. I mean, I was adamant. And um, to get to the place where you're like, wow, like I feel good when I think about my dad was so freeing. And it happened during the the writing of the book. Yeah. Does anybody still call you Frank? Uh, no, but you know, my 20 year old daughter's name's Frankie. Yeah. And my youngest daughter, Ruby's middle name is Ferrana. Is that right? Yeah. That was my wife's doing. She goes, we're taking that name and we're passing it on. Wow. So there's, but there's nobody like, who was I, 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 there was one artist I talked to, I forget. Oh, I asked Alice Cooper. Uh I said, does anybody ever call you uh, Vincent, yeah. you know, his, his birth name. And he said, only one person ever calls me that. And I said, who's that? He said, Keith Richards. He said, <laughs> Keith Richards, like, hey, Vinny, what's going on? He goes, and he's Keith. So I let him he, do he's it. He's Keith. He could do anything. But I'm just curious, do. like people that like, you know, people in your, your family early on that are still alive or yeah. whatever, do they, they all still, they all call you Nikki. Well, some of like the, you know, my cousins and like my aunt and uncle, they'll be like, like Frank Nikki. <laughs> like, 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 they, like, they, they correct themselves, you know, all oh, little Frankie Nicky, you know, it's like you pick a name. And and you know, you know, right. you know, it's amazing that the name thing too, is I think back. So I got too fast for love when it came out on leather records. Uh-huh. I still have that version of the record. 
And it's still one of my favorite records. And um, I guess it's an on with the show where the lyric yeah. is, Frankie died just the other day. Yeah, some say it was suicide, but we know how the story goes. Now, I... I Which was, was think- me saying, you know, the story goes, F you, dad. Right. Like, that was like me killing myself in, in, in my own song. But what's amazing about that, and I think back, like, okay, that's 80, 81. Yeah. There's no internet. There's no Google. Mm-mm. There's no looking up. Like, all my favorite rock stars, you couldn't find out what their real names were. You didn't right. even know if it was a stage name. Yeah. So now, in two seconds, you can find out what somebody's real name yeah. is or anything about them. But you didn't know that then. And as much as I love that record, all the time hearing that lyric, I never associated right. it with you, you know, or or your dad or anything. I'm just like... Who's this guy he's writing about? Who's this guy that Vince who's, is singing who's about? Frankie who's Frankie? Who's Frankie? Who's Susie? And right. what is all this? And, you know, we've all heard like great Springsteen lyrics and stuff where he's got these characters. And But it wasn't like a hardcore thing. I remember I was like writing the lyrics and I was like, like no one wants to use the name Johnny in a song anymore. It's been used so many times. Such a great character, you know. So it's like, you know, Johnny died just the other night. Is it going to work? I was like, Frankie. And I, and I remember thinking, oh, that's kind of funny because I had just changed my name. It wasn't like I was mad. It was kind of, you know, funny. And, you know, I, I never even, like, told the band because it wasn't like a big deal. It was like, hey, guys, guess what I'm doing in this song? It was just as a lyricist, um, as a storyteller and someone who loves telling stories, you just writing and writing and writing and and I write for Vince's voice, 100% write for his voice, the way he sings, the way he breathes. And so I'm usually thinking about that. And when I'm kind of getting into my, into the lyrical side of it and doing stream of consciousness stuff, it's like, I'm always like tempo wise, beat generation and Vince generation, right? How those kind of rhythmically line up. And uh, I love writing for his voice because he has this Gatling gun thing. And you listen to Shout at the Devil, which is exciting for me to write for. It's really exciting for me to write for. It's not like Moon, June, Fire, Desire. It's like, this. I got something to say, but this guy's going to deliver the message. And it's going to be like, you know, a Molotov cocktail. Have you ever written lyrics and brought them to Vince and Vince say, I'm not cool with this or I want to change this or I don't like this? He's, I mean, he'll obviously, and the whole band will say like, these are really cool, but what about this angle? And sometimes, you know, we do change things. I remember uh, on Home Sweet Home um, said, take me in your, uh, take me in your bones, that line in there. And somebody said, mentioned a producer, somebody said, well, isn't it like, take me in your heart? And I was like, no, isn't it like hurt more to like, the knife goes like into the bone? And so I'm always like thinking like that. And Vince is just like really like adaptive to stuff. And he'll take something that doesn't necessarily rhyme. And the way he like adds that thing on it, it, it makes it rhyme. I want to ask you about the name again, because the book is about becoming Nikki six yeah. going from first 21 years is Frank Ferrana and becoming Nikki six. What I find amazing is that, so throughout the book, you stole things, you know, you yeah. stole the piano, you steal things. Yeah. You're a kid, you're trying to make, you know, you actually stole the name, Nikki Six. I stole the name. And, <laughs> the, and, and, the, and the guy's girlfriend. Right. <laughs> talk, talk about that story in the book because it's amazing. The, the, the actual 
adaptation of that name yeah. came from someone else who had that yeah, name. Yeah. Well, first of all, on the uh, the criminal uh, tip. Uh, <laughs> so the piano. That's where it starts, the, the right? The piano. Yeah. So we'll we'll talk about that in a second. But I had this whole thing, and I was like looking at the kind of like the, the these chapters laid out. And I said to my wife, like, I just want you to, you know, read this and, you know, tell me what you think. And she's like brutally honest. My <laughs> wife is brutally honest. She'll be like, I don't get it or I really love it. And I'll know it's, it's, she means Which that. I imagine is helpful for you. Yeah, you very. you probably got a lot of people around you telling you everything's great, but to get yeah. that objectivity would be yeah. important. Ex- absolutely. Yeah. So um, she goes, wow, uh, like you're, like, you're a criminal. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm a criminal. And she goes, I mean, look at all the stuff you did. I go, whoa, whoa, hold on. Did you not get the message? And she goes, what's the message? And I go, well, I mean, we were doing this. We were stealing that. We were, you know, this little ideas here, little selling light bulbs, selling pianos, scamming this because we needed bass strings. We needed a bigger drum riser than anybody else. We needed posters we needed money for rehearsal or gas to, to get eat? to the gig we needed to eat and um that's what that was all about it was like you know i i was willing to work my ass off all the time but sometimes you know <laughs> take a little thing here and there and including selling my own blood pawning my own base like whatever it took and um yeah, I guess there's like something in there. I didn't realize in writing the book that there there is a little bit of a a path to showing what hard work and dedication and doing whatever it takes to make it is it's in there. There's a little bit of a roadmap, I think. Tell the story about becoming Nikki Six, okay. that name okay. and it actually was another musician right. with a slightly different spelling, and you took his name and his girlfriend. <laughs> so um, I know it's like, and, and think you know when you've been around a long time, like you forget about some of those little moments, you know, and it, and you bring it up, and it makes me laugh. So I was uh, Squeeze. The band was called this Squeeze. Called Squeeze. Right? I um, had this girlfriend, Angie. And um, I had lived across the street from Hollywood High School, and the house burnt down. And luckily, I had my bass with me when it happened, or it would have been the end. You know, I really only had one pair of boots and jeans and a couple T-shirts. So I moved in with Angie, and um, I was looking through her scrapbook. And at the time, I was Nikki London of London. And it was me and uh, Lizzie Gray and Dane Rage, John St. John, and different singers. We were trying to find the right singer. I was looking through a scrapbook, and I see this uh, Nikki Six. And I had been thinking about changing my name to Nikki Nine, because I said to the guys, I go, do we want to be the Ramones? Is it going to be like Lizzie London, Dane London, Nikki London? Or are we going to, and so I didn't want it to be my band, because I'm like a, I like to be part of the team, part of the gang. So um, I, I saw his name in a scrapbook, and she spelled, came, spelled differently, right? So it was, it was N-I-K-I-S-Y-X or S-Y-X-X. So she came home, and I said, "Hey, um, I'm now going to go as Nikki Six. She goes, "You can't go as Nikki Six. There's another Nikki Six. <laughs> but you know, when you're young, this is what I loved about the book, and I discovered about myself and about other young people I've seen. Who cares? 
there's another Nikki Six. He's not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. Who cares? Like it, and I stole it. And and like I did make it, and he didn't make it. And he became really religious. And there's like some pamphlets out there for like crew fans. You can find these pamphlets where he talks about Nikki Six, me being the devil. Oh, really? And how like the devil took his name, and and a lot of I've seen some things here and there. I wish I'd collected them. So and and that also actually made me laugh, you know. I steal his girlfriend. I'm the devil. Uh, I got his name, and, and he still doesn't use that name, right? No, no, he doesn't use that name. And just for clarity, for people listening and watching, the band Squeeze that this guy was from is not the Pulling Muscles from a Shell Squeeze. That's right. This it was is like a different a, local. I think, they LA were, band. I think they were like a cover band, Orange County cover band, okay. which was like a real thing right. in the '70s. The cover band, how to how to make money, right? He and I could easily do hours and hours. Uh, Lest we forget, Nikki was also a radio guy at one point himself, so he knows all about having some good conversations on the air. That was great doing that. Yeah. I enjoyed that. Yeah, you did really but, well with it, too. But you're, like, carrying the flag, and I really appreciate that. Um, traveling around the country, and I can, like, plug in with you at any time, get updates and stuff. It's really cool, man. Oh, thanks, man. Well, it's... Uh, been a long time so you yeah, stick with something for a long time <laughs> like yeah, i said i got the first album on leather records that's when i started and we started around the same time it's yeah. amazing because you don't feel that you know i feel like i'm a kid still like i truly believe what we do respectively keeps you young you know really and and look at you man i mean you look great i mean you're 60 62 god bless you man. 62 you going on 82 acting 12 <laughs> depends on the day i see all these guys that did a lot of hard living and drugs and everything uh, and they look great as they get older i'm like i think that shit preserved these it, people yeah, maybe man. so maybe so pickled us <laughs> exactly you look at steven tyler and all these guys you all hear about yeah, everything tyler look man you, those guys crazy. look at joe perry i'm like man i think they're like 10 years older than me yeah. kind of that i think it's kind of like Stones, Aerosmith, the Motleys in there with the Metallicas, and then a little bit younger, the GNRs, but not much. Right. And uh, you start seeing this 10-year jump, and you're looking up at, like, Tyler and those guys, and you're going, damn. Yeah, or even look at Slash. I mean, Slash looks it's, unbelievable. It's killer, he's, man. They're he, out there. Com- he almost, you know, like you, almost killed himself with yeah. substances, and yeah. he, I'm, I'm convinced it preserves, not condoning it in any way. I'm yeah, just yeah, saying, yeah, yeah. It's like, almost like it preserves yeah. you. It's crazy. All right, let's get some uh, some of our audience in. Our first person joining us during this special L.A. invasion with Nikki Six is Dave Gambali. I hope I'm saying your name properly, David. There you are. David, where are you in the world? Hey, David. I'm Burbank, not too far from you, right around the corner. Oh, in, right Cal- in Burbank. All right, well, welcome. Yeah. What's your question for Nikki? Nikki, been a fan since 83, um, so I've heard it all. I've wondered for the longest time, looking back on a lot of the songs from the first five records, is there one or two that stands out to you that flew under the radar? It wasn't a hit single. Yeah. Obviously, the first two albums are all classics, but something that you thought was just a great song that just kind of flew under the radar. It wasn't a single or didn't become a cult favorite. It's the song Stick to Your Guns. I like what it has to say lyrically. I like how it's got that kind of halftime. Dun, 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 dun. And then it goes in as kind of a cheap trick type thing it's very herky jerky a lot uh similar to like too fast for love in the sense i always loved that song and i think it'd be fun for molly to go in the studio and like recut that because like we did that it was like you know we probably cut it in a couple hours just as a demo 
But there's something special about that song. Is it? Now, you talk about that in the book because that song, did you originally write it for Blondie? Blondie. Well, uh, Kim Fowley uh, was like, you know, the we all, I mean, most of us know the story of Kim Fowley, but right. he you know, started the Runaways right. and he was always like in there hustling and putting bands together and he was always on the Sunset Strip and he saw me, you know, in London and saw something in me and, you know, came up to me and started talking to me and and said, um, I got some people if you want to write music for. And uh, one of them was Blondie. So I just wrote Stick to Your Guns. And I went to his apartment, which, yeah, I was, I was so unaffected at that time. I thought I'd go to Kim Fowley's mansion. I went to this, like, kind of rundown, gross apartment in Hollywood. And he had a record collection on the floor and uh, a turntable on the floor. And I played him on bass, Stick to Your Guns. And he goes, great, I'm going to give it to Blondie and took half the publishing. And um, I, and then I heard they didn't like it. Now, what's funny is uh, Debbie is managed by my manager, Alan Kovac, for almost the same amount of time. I've been with Alan for 27 years. I think she's been in there with Blondie of 24 or something. And I see Debbie sometimes, and I always forget to bring it up. Mm. But I also don't want to be shut down. It's like, hey, do you ever hear that song, like, Stick to Your Guns? And she's like, Oh, that song was horrible. <laughs> or, or I have no idea what you're talking about, and you just got scammed. So, but yeah, that's that's a good question, and that that was a really cool song. Didn't does don't you also say in the book that there was a time where Axel had said that Guns and Roses were considering recording that? Uh, yeah, I think I, after we uh, took them out on tour, and uh, they first put out "Welcome to the Jungle," and uh, was it Patience was the next one. I think it was. Well, Sweet Child. Sweet, oh, Sweet out. Child. I'm yeah. sorry, Sweet Child. Yeah. So um, I remember going to the Rainbow, and uh, I saw Axel in there, and he jumped up, and he's like, you know, said hi, and, and thanks for the tour, and thanks for the tour, because now MTV's going to play Sweet Child of Mine. They, they really gave him a shot. And I was super stoked for those guys. And then he kind of told me that he always loved that song, Stick to Your Guns, and had thought about, like, like covering it in GNR or something. That that's pretty cool to hear, you know, that those guys thought that was cool. And uh that song's got its own little like life, so to speak. Stuff like Stick to Your Guns, Toast of the Town was around that time. Yeah. Things yeah. like that. Was that among the earliest stuff you yeah. had written? And was that written so that was written with the intent for London to do, I would think. Yeah, uh Toast of the Town, very uh much like the suite, has kind of a, a chord progression, a melody line. Uh, that parts of that were written and were earmarked for London and the, uh, singer in London didn't like any of the stuff I was bringing in. So I had some complete songs and that ended up being too fast. Like, uh, come on a dance, uh, was something that I was writing and he's like, didn't like it. And I, I was getting into this kind of a, I wanted it to be heavier, but I also wanted it to be hookier mm-hmm. and, um, there was this moment when I wasn't really paying attention to tempo. So the verse in Come On and Dance is very ACDC, and the uh, chorus is kind of stick to your guns too fast for love-ish. I mean, there's some glue in there somewhere in the um, innocence of that just simple songwriting and not really having a home for it either. Let's get another caller on with us. <clears throat> this is Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. Where are you Hi, joining from- us from? I'm from Kingsville, Maryland. All right. Yeah. So I just want to say um, 
I'm so excited. Thank you for making this happen. Thank you for being so engaging with your fans. I'm just curious, what part of the book did you have the hardest time writing? That's a really good question. And this is a book I could say there was no hard parts. There was no fear on my part. I've, I've, written, I've been so brutally honest in some of my other books. There was just I, I wasn't scared about talking about my dad or my mom or, or my uh, empathetic view, my helicopter view of my past and changing maybe the way I feel about it and also connecting it to some of... Uh, some of the healing parts, which is a you know kind of weird to say to like a rock audience, but the book was cathartic for me and cathartic for my family and for my my children. That when they read it, they they felt even like they understood their dad more because they weren't even born. And we don't talk a lot about things like Motley Crue and stuff like that in the family. You know, we're we're just a regular family. Right. Um, we don't really have golden platinum albums in the house. Um, and the book kind of connected me with, uh, ex friends, not exes in like, I got rid of them. I just lost liked, touch. You lost touch. Right. You know, so there was no hard parts. That's a really good question though. What was the biggest reconnection for you in doing the book, whether it be a band, a past band member mm-hmm. or somebody in your family, what was the, maybe, I don't know, the, the, the biggest revelation in, in in terms of reconnecting with somebody was there a moment or two that you had that you're just like, you know, wow, I, it's been a long time and I really miss yeah. this person. Yeah, and yeah. tell me about that. Well, um, the drummer in London, Dane Rage, we have run into each other over the years and stayed a little bit in contact. It's been about fifteen years since I saw him, and we probably spent about eight hours on the phone reminiscing and talking and laughing and uh the the like the story about the piano and where we lived together and it felt so good to be talking to someone that was there when we were 18 19 years old 20 years old and like wh- you're like we were in a band together but like where did you come from again like you know like these like parts of our story that we're like relearning about and then what he went on to do in his life. And, um, my friend Rick Van Zant, who ended up being the guitar player in metal church, that was a big influence on me. And I met the first day, uh, in Seattle at Roosevelt high school. That was fantastic. And then a fun story is my co-writer Alex. And the reason I used a co-writer is my last book took two and a half years to write. And I just wasn't down for that. And I wanted to have somebody that could like get the story on paper that also had a voice like mine. And then I would go over and work on top of it. So we had the whole book laid out and we had tent posts and here's Rick Van Sant and here's Dane Rage and here's this person. And here's, this is your first girlfriend, you know, Susie Maddox. And we started trying to find them. And he called me and he said, Hey, um, Nikki, I found, I found your first girlfriend. I go, like, she's still in Jerome, Idaho. I was 13. And, uh, this is not in the book, by the way. So, um, he said, no, she's like in Utah and she's married and, you know, she has a Facebook page, but there's no social media. There's no any way to get a hold of her. There's just a, a landline. He goes, what do you think I should do? And I go, let's call it. 
So he calls and he goes, hi, I'm Alex. I'm working on a book about Frank Ferrana. And she goes, I remember Frank. And he goes, would you, you know, be open to talk about it? And Frank would like to talk to you. So started saying, where did uh, Frank Lee go to after I heard he moved to Seattle? And then he kind of starts, you know, backtracking and ended up in Los Angeles. He says now he lives in Wyoming with his wife and daughter, and he's got four, four older kids. And she goes, oh, well, what did Frank ever end up doing? And he's like, oh, well, he tours. And she goes, what do you mean? And then he goes, well, he's like, he's in a band. And she's like, Frank's in a band? <laughs> <laughs> and then it was like kind of that moment where he's like, oh, wow, this is happening in real time. This is so innocent and so perfect, even though it didn't fit into the storytelling in the book. What band? Motley Crue. Dead Silence. And she goes, I had a Motley Crue album in my hand one time. And I looked at the photo and I go, that looks just like my first boyfriend, Frankie. And she looked down and said, Nikki Six. So she, wow. she put the record. She didn't even buy the record. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I love that. Yeah. And that's that's some of the the cool stuff that happened. That is amazing. And by the way, Dane Rage is a great name too. That is way better <laughs> than Nikki Six. Is Dane Rage still playing? Dane is an entrepreneur. All right. Started a toy company. He has holds some crazy number of patents, like 250 patents, and sold his company for millions and millions of dollars. And we always laugh because he was like this golden god, six foot. Six, blonde hair, perfect body. Looked like he did not look like he was in a rock band and was perceived as the dumb drummer. Is he still using the name Dane Rage? No, no, he right. has his actual name. <laughs> and he's extremely uh, talented and creative and successful. And it's neat, like, you know, talking with him about his business. Yeah. Like, like, where did he go when I left? Right. And, you know, part of the story is that. London couldn't find a singer after Nigel left and different failed singers and a bass player. So Blackie Lawless joined London for one gig. I think. So here's the thing. And we'll, we'll just go the rest of the way back and forth with questions and me. And because again, Nikki, the, things are firing in my head that I, I don't want to forget about. So Blackie Lawless pre London. Yep. There was a band called sister. Yep. That you and Blackie were both in. Yep. And how did you connect with Blackie at that time? Because I've talked to Blackie's sister was, by every account, pretty over the top. Over the top. I mean, I was like, this is it. Blackie doesn't get enough credit. It was important to me in my book because I had Blackie in my life for a time. And he influenced me and he taught me a lot of stuff. And he also fired me because I wasn't up to par. And that was probably one of the greatest things that happened to me is he fired me and Lizzie and Dane and we started London. Right. And then we'll, we'll get into that because we'll, you know, me and you, we'll just two right. hours from now, we'll be talking right, about right, the right. kick drum sounds. Right. But, <laughs> exactly. but, so Blackie was on the strip and I would see him out and we were all like hanging out and we're trying to put a band together and we end up joining Blackie, me, Lizzie, and Dane in Blackie's band. Black, it is Blackie's band. 
Like he's the leader. He's the songwriter. He's the singer. You do what he says. Playing guitar or bass at that time? He was playing guitar. I was playing bass. Okay. And everything was great. We went to rehearsals. We sounded pretty good. I thought we sounded pretty good, but I was pretty young. And then we went to record some demos. Have you ever heard the song Mr. Cool? No, not that I know of. Unbelievable song. A sister song. Uh, Yes, unbelievable song. I am shocked it was not a smash hit. So, so wait, did Sister release music? Uh, no, I think he released Mr. Cool with under Wasp? Killer Kane when he played with the New York Dolls oh. for a second. Okay. Arthur Kane came to L.A. His nickname was Killer Kane. They had a short stint uh, together, and it, and it failed. And I think uh, Arthur went back to the East Coast, and Blackie obviously stayed on the right. West Coast. So that song was from him and that, and... Then we had it in Sister. And I just remember listening to the demos of that thing over and over. It's like the perfect written song. So we go to a recording studio, probably a little eight-track studio or something, and we're recording. And then um, we thought we were doing pretty good. Blackie had been in the studio. He's probably five years older than us, been around, had experience, and fired us because you guys suck, man. You guys can't cut it. And we're like, what are you talking about? Sounds great. He goes, you guys can't cut it. So by l- him, then he, f- you know, ended up forming Wasp. London happened, uh, which was a big, big thing for me. And I learned a lot about songwriting and learned a lot about performing and learned a lot about what I wanted or didn't want in a band. Let me get one more caller in here and viewer before we have to take a break, but we have another hour to play with and much more to cover. Let's welcome Shannon Wynn who's joining us from New York City right now. And Shannon, welcome. You're on with Nikki Six. This is so crazy. Hi. Hi. Yeah, I just moved to New York, but I spent my first 21 plus years out in Long Beach, California. All right. So so I was curious. um, You obviously accomplished a lot in your career, writing music, doing photography, writing books, and turning one into a musical, which as a theater nerd, I am very excited for. (laughs) And I'm just curious, is there anything that you haven't done in your career yet that you always wanted to do? Yeah, I just recently, I can't release the name, but I just uh, signed a deal with a major director uh, in animation, and we are forming a company, and we are going to start creating children programming that has original music in it. Each show will have an original song that is based uh, around the message that we have in that particular episode. What's the timetable for that next year? Well, we're having dinner in a couple nights uh, from now, and we're going to kind of map that out. We have a production company in the UK. We have a writer that we're really excited with. We have an audio team that we're really excited with. A guy that's very close to me, a good friend, who's going to be scoring all the music. And it's going to be an exciting project. And the other thing that I've wanted to do, oh, God, this must be 15 years ago. I said to my manager, I had this idea about a children's book. And he said, I think let's put a pin in it. So right now, uh, developing a children's book with my wife. And it's about a a kid. uh, In this case, it's a little girl, since we have a little girl named Ruby. But uh, travels around the world and teaches diversity and open-mindedness. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's something good for kids to read. 
uh, to, you know, being colorblind, being open to all, all these interesting cultures and food and languages. And um, so we're really excited about that. So those are, you know, a couple things that I've always wanted to do and can't wait to get started on it. And the caller mentions some of the stuff online. The photography, I know, you do, you do great stuff with photography. Thank you. Thank you. That's a big passion for you as well yeah. still, right? Yeah. It all goes back, Eddie, to as far back as I can remember, I was documenting everything. So if you give me a camera, I'm going to document it. Give me a pen, give me a whatever, uh, an opportunity to write a book, write a song, write a poem, write a couplet. I, I enjoy that. And in the beginning, I thought I was just a songwriter. And now I think that there's so many other things that launch off of that. So I'm just open to whatever comes. You know, I'm I'm kind of young. You know, I got I got another 20 years of just being creative in me. But you you you're this gatherer of stuff and creator of stuff. But if I'm not mistaken, and I don't know if this was in the book or somewhere else, I heard this. You actually aren't really a pack rat, right? Like you don't mm. save. St- like was it you that said that it was? In the band, it was really like Vince. Vince that has Vince everything. has everything. So, you, but as yeah. far as you, you don't have old clippings, and you didn't save no. things from this old stage props or anything like that. I found the Shout at the Devil like gauntlet, like the if you know that album and you know that era, you know what it is. It has that a pentagram and the eye in it, and I remember making that with this guy. It seems like just yesterday, and I hadn't seen it in years, and I found it in a box when we were moving. And and I put it on, and it was like, oh, like it was all of a sudden, oh, my God, I'm going to start playing Shout at the Devil. It's like it's taking over. Um, so, you know, I I found a few things over the years. The one thing is heartbreaking to me is my bass tech from, for, from the beginning on sold a lot of my original lyrics. And it really breaks my heart because – Whoever out there has those don't deserve those. Mm. They my my kids deserve those. Yeah, and uh, so that that's that's like I lost that, but the other stuff I didn't collect. But if you need anything, call Vince Neil because <laughs> I swear to God, he's got like eight storage <laughs> units full of of stuff. And thank God he does because sometimes we need to see that stuff and make copies of it or take photos of. Yeah, it. Yeah, no doubt. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Price drop, time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. 
Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Second hour here with Nikki, who has his new book out now, The First 21. It's a fantastic read, and we're going to get to as much of the, the stuff in it as possible, obviously really just scratching the surface even with two hours. But London, the band, is a big part of this because it was the band just before Motley. Yeah. And reading this and, and the way it's written, it really puts you in the – early 80s here in LA and the whole scene that was going on. Now, being an East Coast guy, I've only read about that, but I have so many yeah. friends that I that I know that were in bands that have told me the stories about that, the Starwood and all yeah. that stuff that Starwood went on. was a big deal. Yeah. I'm curious about London. Mm -hmm. Why didn't the band, quote unquote, make it? Why didn't it get over the hump? Even more interestingly, which I learned from the book, you had an uncle that was high up at Capitol Records yeah. that had even come to check the band out mm -hmm. and, and passed on London. What was missing? Why do you think it didn't go the whole way? Well, first of all, my uncle Don Zimmerman, married to my mom's sister, knew that I was head over heels in love with rock music and living in, in Idaho. And he would send me records. He would send me Wings, Steve Miller, just more stuff to feed my imagination. And he had come up to Idaho to uh, visit and said to me, if you ever want to come to Los Angeles, you can, you know, we have a guest room for you. Now, I'd already been to Seattle. I'd already seen Queen Rush in Kansas in the same night. You know, I, I'd seen Kiss open for Savoy Brown. I'd seen Deep Purple. I'd seen Led Zeppelin. You know, Idaho's not going to work for me right now. It's <laughs> just like, it ain't going to happen. It's not on the routing. <laughs> I, I've got a guitar. I've got a bass, and i got a guitar, and i got a dream. And that was the stroke of luck. And, and, and I do talk about luck a lot in this book because we all get lucky breaks. And that was a big lucky break for me. So I came down, stayed with him, and... Eventually got out on my own. He got me a job at, a, at my first record store, Music Plus in Glendale, California, and uh, let me borrow his F-150 Ford, uh, Ford pickup truck, which I thought was about the coolest thing ever, driving around, listening. Rock radio was amazing back then. And so we're in the 70s, right? It's like 1976, 77. And um, by the time I had gone through all these different versions of trying to put together bands or joining other bands or the sister story, London was like really starting to happen. And when we were like peaking, I told the guys, I said, you know, my, my uncle's going to come see us. And they were pretty much like, well, that's nice. And I go, no, you don't understand who my uncle is. And they're like, are you kidding me? He's the president of Capitol Records. And why didn't you tell us? And I said, because I didn't think we were ready. Hmm. And so the big 
night came and we were so good. We were a cross between T-Rex, Queen, and Bowie. And it, Nigel's voice, Nigel Benjamin's voice, five octave range, he could do things vocally that other guys just couldn't do. We're like now leaning in the Freddie Mercury world um, instead of like the blues rock world. And um, I remember the night he came down, suit and tie, had an A&R guy with him with a suit and tie, and we crushed it. I mean, it was unimaginable that we were not going to be the next biggest band in the world. I, he said, call me the next day. And I did. And he said, you know, Frankie, and it's like, just not a good fit for Capitol Records. And uh, I was like, what are, you ta- what are you talking about? Like, I can line up my record collection and go, this is who we are. Right. We fit with these guys. And that's not who they were signing in the late 70s. They wanted the Knack. They wanted the Plimsolls. They wanted the Go-Go's. They wanted the hand claps and the happy dancing and the clean guitar tones. And it just wasn't happening. Quiet Riot uh, was, after Van Halen left, the biggest band in Los Angeles when, when Randy was in the band. And they didn't have an American Couldn't get signed. They couldn't get signed. And Randy obviously went to Ozzy, and that changed the world forever. Those those albums are unbelievable. So I went to band rehearsal, and I said, I got great, great, the best news ever. And uh, Lizzie goes, well, tell me. And I said, we're the same band. We, we, we got the same stage. We, you know, we have the following, blah, blah, blah. And Nigel goes... Give me the bad news. And me and Nigel didn't really get along. I wanted something different for the band than what he wanted. And I said, well, you know, Capital passed on. He goes, well, in that case, I quit. I quit your effing band. And I was like, you you know, if you quit, you get what you get. Like, that's it. And that that was the end of Nigel. Forever. Mm. He, who knows what would have happened if he would have stayed. Or what formation of London it would have been. Or maybe that was a stroke of luck for me. And even people reading the book, and you'll learn more about this. And again, I could go down all these roads, but just in the interest of time, read the book. Because the whole Nigel even being in the band is crazy in and of itself. Because that story and how you track it, this is a guy that you were a a fan of that was the singer in Mott, right? That's right. And And British Lions. And you cold call basically England. Mm -hmm. And I'm this kid. No, no, that's, no, Nigel was in America. The person I cold call is Brian Conley from Sweet. Sweet, right. And when I get back to Wyoming, I'll take a picture of the letter that I wrote to Brian Conley. And uh, I'll, I'll send it to you so you can see it. It's amazing. Again, I, 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 we can't go into all of it for the yeah. interest of time, but read the book because the connection of the dots on what we're talking about here is uh, absolutely incredible. All right, let's get another caller up. Uh, here is Ray, and Ray is in Woodbridge, Illinois. Hi. Hi. Hey. You, got Amy, you have Amy, Ray's wife. Ray got pulled into a conference call. Oh, so okay. I apologize, but here I am. Um, first and foremost, Love you guys both to pieces. Um, Nikki, thank you for sharing about the children's book on diversity. I can't tell you how happy it makes my heart as a parent. We need, we need that kind of support. So thank you. Yeah. Thank Um, you. 
The question that Ray and I collaborated on is, your music has now reached several generations of music fans. When you consider the positive impact and legions of fans, are you satisfied with your legacy in music or are there stones yet unturned? That's a great question. And uh, I don't know if I have a great answer because I'm kind of in it. I'm literally in it. Like I'm on the airplane right now and I don't really know where we're going to land. I'm just taking every day, one day at a time, which is a bumper sticker as well. But I just want to like keep creating and I, I don't know what's in the future for Motley Crue or 6am or I got a couple book things that I'm working on that involve music, which might involve me putting together another band. I mean, Eddie, it's, it's like cats, it's like chasing cats in my head. It's like, I can't catch them. I'm trying to wrangle cats. It's you have a hard time sleeping, I have a turning hard, it off. Yeah. And I me have, too. I record stuff in the middle of the night, but just shutting off the brain. That's mm -hmm. my heart. I'll, I'll just, even though I'm not a songwriter or musician, I'll have a song randomly come into my head yeah, yeah. that I just can't, I just can't shut off. Or like this today, last night I'm in the hotel. Okay. I got Nikki tomorrow. I did something earlier with mm -hmm, somebody else. Mm -hmm. Like I just can't, you can't shut it down. You yeah. have that? I, d I do have that. And I fought that uh, at times through drugs and alcohol, believe it or not. I didn't realize that till like, you know, way year. I've been 20 years sober at this point. Um, Congrats, by the way. Thank you very much. I also found through meditation, uh, through working out helps me uh, and having something to focus on. Because if I don't have anything to focus on, it's like my it's like I'm scanning the room. I'm going to lock on Eddie right now. And then I'm locked. And then I have, I mean, you can talk for hours and hours and hours. Right. I don't know what that is. Uh, I don't think it's like ADD or anything like that, but I don't want it to ever stop. Right. Cause it's also my curiosity. Right. Right. I want to ask you a quick thing about Motley before we go to another question. And I've, I've been curious about this. As I mentioned, the last time you and I spoke, at least uh, on the record here publicly, was when The Dirt came out. Mm -hmm. And it, it's funny because if you pull that audio or video, it's you and Tommy. And I say to, to the two of you, you know, hey, the movie's going to do well. And is there any chance Motley would play again? And both of you look at each other with the most like mischievous grin and Tommy looks and you look and like, cause it wasn't announced yet. Right. And, and, and I, I I'm sure you both knew, but you didn't know, eh, you know, we'll see. So watching that in retrospect is amazing, but we it's all know liars, liars. <laughs> These guys are liars. Well, slash, I'll never forget slash literally called me the day before the GNR reunion was announced you know, dude, I don't know what's up with all this Guns N' Roses reunion talk. <laughs> and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. But the question about Motley that I've... Now, we know everything's been derailed and pushed back, sure. and we're all hopeful for next summer. And it is going next summer. Great. So that's all great. But, and maybe you don't know this yet, what is Motley now? Like, has Motley reunited to do the stadium tour, and that's pretty much it? Mm -hmm. Or do you have aspirations beyond that for Motley to go out every year or to possibly make a new record? Or have right. you not discussed that yet? It's not like we haven't discussed it. Like it's like something that we got to talk about. I think that once we all started talking, first the offers come and we're like, 
like stadium tours, really, and we start talking to each other. And By the it, way, that's the way this book opens, yeah. which is an incredible... I told you on text, that blew my mind, because the irony of this is Motley gets back together because you go to a Dodgers game right. with your agent and say, why didn't we ever play Dodgers Stadium? And he says, because you guys broke up, yeah. so you reunite to do it, but then the stadium tour is not booked at Dodger Stadium. I know. I, re- I remember when I got like the, the routing... And uh, it, it was like SoFi, which wasn't finished yet uh, here in Los Angeles, SoFi right. Stadium. And uh, so I was, I was like, are you sure it's going to even be done in time? You know, because I really had my mind set on Dodger Stadium. But um, the long-term projection I, I for Motley, you just don't know. Well, I, here, here's the thing. Like, uh, I know we're going to tour next year, and that's going to take us from June 19th to sometime in September. And then winter sets in, and we're in America so there's nowhere else to play unless we can go to other countries where it's summertime or spring or fall there. Uh, well, what's going to happen with COVID? So I don't know uh, right now. I do know what's happening in America. I don't know what's going on in Europe or South America or Mexico, uh, Australia, New Zealand. Would you like to make another Motley record? I would love to. Yeah, I would love to like make some music with the guys again. I I would love to get really simple and really raw and really dirty. And that's something like I'm inspired by now, whether it might be a new band or stuff I'm listening to and the simplicity of Black Dog. And you like listen to that and you're like, man, some of the stuff that's out right now is so good, but it's also so overproduced. Um, I don't feel that when I listen to any genre of music or just in the rock world, Sabbath had the same kick drum sound as Zeppelin, the same kick drum sound as Aerosmith, the same guitar sound. They all had the same guitar sound. It bothers me that so much stuff sounds the same, yet it's also this really good, really good hooks, really aggressive, really exciting. And so when I hear some younger bands and like, you know, people will like, like throw to like Greta Van Fleet, for example, what everybody liked about that is it was just simple and raw and passionate that, that first EP and, um, the same with like the struts and stuff like that. It was just, there was some innocence to it. And I think that there's so much technology out there that we can fall prey to making it perfect and I would love to make maybe some imperfect music. Mm. Well, I love the Struts, and I, I know those guys, and I said that to them. Their last record, they went in and did in 10 days, wrote and recorded. And did they I, work with Butch Walker on that one? No, no. no. They worked with um, Albert Hammond. Oh, yeah. And uh, they just went in and did it in quarantine. They got tested. And, and I, w- you know, I would always beat Luke up about that a little bit because I love that band to death, but I'm like, I want you to be a little more raw, a little mm-hmm. more rock, a little mm-hmm. more. And they went in and did that. And, and I, and I love them. I love them for it. But yeah, everybody, I, I'm very encouraged about the young bands in rock right now. I think we're, I think there's some great young bands. Yeah. I, what I'm concerned about is I don't know. And, and again, this circles back to the book and our passion for this music, whether it's Aerosmith, you and I share a, a great love of the raspberries and you touch on that in this book. They were my, they were the first rock music I ever heard as a 10 year old kid. Did you ever see him on? It was Don Kirshner's. Yes. Oh, yeah. When they came out with the amps and the flying V's 
Because I love their songwriting. I mean, it was like, these songs are amazing. The melodies are amazing. But a little closer to Beatles. Yeah. A little softer. And when they came out, I was like, well, these guys are... Well, that's the starting over record. That's the fourth record where they went from leisure suits on the cover on one record to dark cloud, you know. Mm -hmm. And it was... Oh, God. All four of those records are... Just brilliant. And of course, the Raspberries covered, I mean, uh, Motley. Motley covered tonight. tonight you covered yeah. tonight, yeah. which you did a cool version of. But just, you know, that was my gateway band. And my point about bringing that up is that we have those moments like whether you and I share with the Raspberries. And for me, right after Raspberries came Kiss and Aerosmith mm-hmm. and all of that, it was your. It was everything waiting in line at the record store for it to open to get the mm-hmm. record or. The tickets go on sale, people with their tents outside. It wasn't about who had the most money to be by the biggest VIP. Yeah. It was who got to the Ticketmaster the earliest. So all of that passion that you had, what I worry about, and, and you tell me where you land on this, people don't have the same relationship with music anymore. Like, it it's was hard. our everything. Now I have kids. My kids are 14 and 17. They want to hear something. They click. I don't like it. They're on to the next. There's not that mm-hmm. same ownership relationship. And I worry, I don't worry about the quality of bands because I think there's some great stuff. I worry about them breaking through and people caring enough to get that invested like we were. It used to be three years, the label in, believed in you for three years, would push you for three years. Um, then it got down to be six weeks. So if you're Aerosmith, when did you break? I mean, I mean, three albums. I'm sorry, not three years. I apologize. Uh, they broke on Toys, third album. Right. Think about Nugent. Yeah. Think about even Kiss. Like, think about these bands. It was kind of in that third album phase where they had time to develop. And, yeah, they had a big following. And, yeah, they were like, those are, I mean, the first Aerosmith, second Aerosmith albums. I mean, geez, I could, that would be my desert island you yeah. know, record. I could listen to One Way Street over and over and over off the first album. I'm Rocks all the way. Oh, well, rock, well but it led, it led to Rocks, right. which was then a whole other, like, mind-blowing experience. But it took time. And I read an article recently about the brain and how it's being rewired by social media and they specifically talked about tiktok so you got this like and then a girl says something stupid in a bikini and you like stay a little bit longer and then a guy comes on who might say something motivational but i he's not in a bikini so you trip you go you keep going you keep going you keep going and it's dopamine it's dopamine. It makes me feel good. You look really good today. You look really handsome today. You're perfect. You're the, and people are getting addicted to that dopamine, so they're not uh, able to think beyond short term. So how does that apply to music? My thought is, is a band, you're going to have the interest in the artist long term enough to watch them develop, or is it just quick clicks, likes, um, how many people are following what ridiculous thing you can do to be clickbait to get into the news. So people hear about you. It's not toys in the attic. 
Well, the other thing too, and we got to go to break here, but the other thing too that makes me crazy is the way the business is now. It's all about pre-sale, front load, get your first week number, yeah. put out a press release, you entered at number six, but don't look where the record is in the third week because it's probably off the charts completely. Whereas before it was, you watch that ride, it was a year up mm -hmm. and down, you have a bullet, you hit with a new video or single, you got a bullet again, you're down to 120, suddenly you're at 62. It was a year proposition, at least the arc of a record. And that's how you got into people's bloodstream. Yeah. It took time right you know it sounds like a we're doing like a psychology show <laughs> at this point but you know there's a lot of psychology to all this yeah. stuff yeah remember you'll be able to watch all of this as well on the sirius xm app and let's bring in arlo taylor right now arlo is in little rock arkansas and he is up next with nikki six on this virtual invasion from la hi arlo welcome it's great to see you guys. It's great to be a part of this. And I just want to say thank you, Nikki, for uh, just the kindness. I follow you on Instagram and the kindness and thoughtfulness you share uh, about people. Uh, it's just really cool for us regular Joes out here. Uh, thank you. But man. here's my question. That. Yeah. Everyone knows the image and legendary stories, but when you strip it all away, the music and art still stands on its own with your attitude and authenticity. How important is that attitude to your art and how do you maintain that edge? Because most artists at your level of success seem to lose it. Right. Well, the attitude uh, I would hope that you might be referencing is my positive outlook on things. And uh, I, I'm, I love a challenge, but I think what if the, whatever you would say my edge is, uh, that my, my interest is that I love the idea of putting myself in positions where I might fail. Like, it excites me. It's like, okay, I'm going into a whole new world. I'm going to try something totally different. And um, I got to get out of my comfort zone. And it keeps me interested. And because I'm, I'd like to work so hard, I'll get myself in a pickle and then I got to work myself out of it. And then I find myself surrounded by really talented people. And a lot of cases, I have people that are better at certain things, like in marketing than me. But I have ideas, and we tie it together, and then we get creative. And next thing you know, we've got uh, a book and a musical and a soundtrack to a book and a song like Life is Beautiful that connected with a lot of people with recovery. And then I'm like, wow, that was like really cool, but I put myself in a little bit of an uncomfortable position. Well, I imagine working on the dirt and the gestation period for the dirt, which yeah. is just so, I mean, I imagine there were times during the course of that and the whole production of that and the ups and downs and the ins and outs where you probably started, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but questioning whether it was even going to happen or never. the right thing to do, or can this be done? No, never. Are you, you never questioned whether it could be nope, done? Nope. I just knew we needed the right partner until we found Netflix. We didn't have the right partner. In looking back on the dirt, now that it's been out for a little bit, how, how do you feel how it holds up? Are you happy with it? Because one of the things really interesting in the book that I picked up on, that I, I made a note that, that I, I wanted to ask you about this, you talk about something in the book that the dirt got wrong. Right. There, there's a moment in there, I forget, I don't have it right in front of me, but I remember reading where you say something like, here's something that wasn't accurate in the film. Yeah, which is kind of a no-no to do, 
but since I was going back and reliving a lot of this, it was, um, it was, it was the, the fact that I called my dad and, you know, he said, you know, I don't have a son and all that. And there's was a phone call that happened in my life, uh, that wasn't the phone call in the book, the phone call in the book, my dad had already passed. And that was, uh, hard to accept because he can't be mad at somebody who's dead. Right. You can't be, you can't make an amends with somebody who's dead. So that, that's why we got into that. Were there other things? We all know Hollywood takes liberties and things sure. get embellished in stories. I'll, I'll tell you a story that I, I never told you. I went to the screening for the film and and you were there, of course, and mm-hmm. it was at the Arclight or whatever it was here right after we did the, the event. And uh, walking out, I ran into Doc McGee. Mm-hmm. And Doc comes up to me, and I said, what you think of the movie? He goes, I liked it. He goes, but the scene about me bringing Nikki's mom to the show, uh, I, I never met Nikki's mom. So were you aware of that? And how does that happen that maybe, is that just Hollywood taking some liberties with the story? Or is it there and people forget yeah. or misconstrue it? Or So when you're making a movie about, 10, 20, 40 year career, Gandhi, you know, you imagine, um, you have to truncate stuff, um, and you have to get creative with it. So we had two managers, we had Doc McGee and Doug Thaler. There's the scene in the beginning where they, we even say we're going to take Doug out. Right. I recall that. Yeah. Um, that, that was kind of our way of like letting you behind the curtain, like how you make, uh, movies. The scene with my mom, when my mom did come, and we were playing the Seattle Coliseum, and it was a, a bad scene. It was the scene in the movie. Um, they, as the writers, needed to place somebody bringing her in, and what would the situation be? And the thing about Doc saying that is it's really interesting because everybody has to sign off on the script. Doc signed off on the script. Yeah, that makes sense. He understood that that made sense. Right. As a storytelling, um, you can't jump all over the place and have too many characters. Right. Um, so that's interesting. He said that, but um, yeah, that's how that whole thing. Happened. But that's intru- that reminds me about about Doug Thaler, who was also the co-manager of the band, mm-hmm. and that I thought that was really like you guys coming right out front and say, Hey, look, yeah. there was another guy, but we just can't tell it all in 90 minutes. Yeah, we can't. And tell you need it all. to streamline the story. And we know these biopics, they're not documentaries. So all of them are going to have that. Yeah. Uh, the queen one certainly did as people sure. know, even as far as timeline is concerned. Yeah. So the diehards will find those little tiny things and, you know, point them out. But in general, the general public, it's about telling a good story. Yeah. Yeah. Let's bring in Jay Warsinski. Jay is here in, Hollywood, California, and Jay is next up, joining us via Zoom, and we welcome Jay to the show. Hey, Jay, how are you? You're on with Nikki. Nikki, I'm so blessed that I was one of your first promoters with Motley Crue with the Leather Records team. I've been doing promotion for 50 years come next year. Awesome. I was born in in 58, too, so I, I go way back, you know, and when you guys came out, you sounded to me like a cross between Cheap Trick and Sweet, and... I had worked with both those bands, so it oh. was a blessing to see you guys come out, even indie style. Yeah. But my question was, like Van Halen before you, coming here in the mid to late 70s, it was all about punk rock and new wave and disco. Yeah. And I'm curious how that 
influenced your music? Because obviously you, you came in with a fresh sound that was reminiscent of your favorite bands, but mm. how, how did the punk scene and all that influence you? Well, a couple things. Let's backtrack a little bit to FM radio and how important FM radio was after AM radio, which was single-oriented. So now you got album-oriented music. And I could hear, when I was a kid, Led Zeppelin, and the next song would be Olivia Newton-John, and then it would be some new band uh, called Aerosmith doing a Yardbirds cover, and then there would be Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. So my mind was trained very early to, to be open. And then working in record stores, I would put on ACDC, then I would put on ABBA, then we would put on punk rock. And so when I was in the scene, I, my brain was wired like that. So I could hear something in the disco world, like one of my favorite Rolling Stone albums is um, Black and Blue and Miss You is like such an amazing song, obviously influenced by dance music, not dance music we have now, but like disco in a sense with the bass line. But they did it their own style, the way they've been able to attack country with their own style and the way they've been able to attack reggae with their own style. So um, it was all like going into my brain and coming out like that's cheap trick, but it's also the Ramones. It's like they're kind of playing the same way, but like Aerosmith would do this kind of a choppy riff right here. So it was never a uh, a rule for me. Like I never had a rule, yeah. which is kind of cool. Now I didn't go like, like right now, like Motley Crue, we're going to be a country band. Like it would be like, what is happening? But in the beginning, whether you're listening to country and disco and punk rock and heavy metal, they all kind of get in there. And then you're like, well, that's kind of what exile and main street was about. Oh, that's kind of what this album was about. So you're able to, um, you, you say it was a fresh sound. Uh, I think it was just an accumulation of other sounds. When you talk about the Stones, I think you mean Tattoo You. You said Black and Blue because Miss You, I believe, is on Tattoo You. I think it's on Black and Blue. Is it? I think it might be. I thought it was on, Maybe I'm wrong. I, I Totally possible. Well, you're usually not wrong on this. So, <laughs> so if I can stump you, dude, I'm this. Is, I thought this Miss is You was Let's Tattoo bet $100. You. Tattoo You. No, Alex, I'm too tight up. on my money. I'm not giving you my money. <laughs> Somebody's got to tell us. I Some took a hundred bucks off Nikki Six just now. <laughs> Somebody before this show's over going to come and tell us. Some girls. We're both wrong. Are you? It is not on some girls. And they just told me in my ear. They're lying. We're both wrong. Oh, my God. So we, well. Miss you is on. Yeah. We're you, can, both you can still give me a hundred dollars if you <laughs> no, want to. We both owe Alex, my producer, a oh, hundred bucks. He made two hundred dollars. Exactly. <laughs> we're both wrong. Wow. When a band's got 50 records, it's, it's easy yeah, to get them it, confused it is, yeah. here and there. But you know, you bring that up and that's an interesting point too. When you think about, okay, so we talked about the, the negative aspects of maybe the relationship people have with music. Now, the positive may be that it's much easier to do what you did hearing that wide variety of music right mm. now because you don't have to sp spend 10, 15 bucks every record. You can go online and you can, for better or worse, yeah. you can hear everything. So you can go to Shuffle very easily and you can experience different yeah. eras and different styles of, even if you're just into rock, different hybrids of that. Yeah. A lot easier younger people can do that than we ever could. 100%. Where it would cost you money every time. It cost you money, but also we would hang out at our friend's house and we would argue. You know, I love the argument. I, I do this thing at my house sometimes, well, pre-COVID, 
we get a bunch of, you know, couples come over for a barbecue and just the guys will sit around the table and the girls are off doing their thing. And I like, you name a band and then you got to go around. It's like, I hate that band. I was like, what are you talking about? They changed music forever. That's what we did as teenagers. You're still doing it, you know? Oh, uh, Love so it. So when I come here, uh, usually in normal times monthly, I sit for hours at the Rainbow with Tom Morello. He and I in the back booth. Oh my god! I and they'll imagine. close. They'll they'll close it too and let us stay back there. And we play game like here's two guys in their fifties yeah. playing games like that. Tom has one that we can never do if the a member we can never do like if there's somebody like if Tom Tom could never do Rage Against the Machine say for this because here's why it's he calls it MVP weakest link. You have to pick the oh. one guy that the band couldn't exist without and the guy that the band could exist the easiest if he was axed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the rule is, like, you're sitting there and there's guys from two or three bands. You, you Out of respect, you'd never do their band. Yeah, never do their band. Because they could be the they weakest link. They could be link. the guy that's the weakest link. Oh, my God. that's I love that but stuff. But this is the stuff we do. Like, yeah. even on text threads or whatever, mm -hmm. it's crazy. But that's what being a fan is, right? Yeah. I mean, that's I, at the end of I the day. I talk about that in the book. Yeah. Uh, I... I don't know. I, I just feel a lot of times like uh, memoirs and stuff about a lot of uh, rockers, especially uh, um, that I've read, they they don't come off as fans as much as like, you know, I was influenced by these bands and then I went on and did my own thing, which is fantastic and why we love them. But I really wanted people to know I'm still a fan. Yeah. I still like the hair still goes up on my arm when I put on certain records and I always want to be that way. And that's who Frank was. You know, Fr there's, there's, there's a Frank out there with everybody, you know, small town, big town. Someone that's in love with music, coming of age, has an idea and goes for it and will do anything to make it happen. And uh, that's why I wanted to co-write it as myself. I wanted to show pictures of myself when I didn't have it all figured out. One of my favorite pictures in the book is of uh, me and my first girlfriend, um, uh, Susie, and I've got kind of a bowl cut uh, because my grandfather finally agreed to let me grow my hair out, which it was in a bad place. And I, and I found I needed glasses. So we drive over to Twin Falls. I think it was Lynn's Crafters. And I go, that's those are cool because it looks like Elvis. So, you know, in retrospect, I have a bowl cut with these like big gold frame glasses. And I thought I was doing good. You know, I had a girlfriend, you know, I have a couple rock records in my collection. And I look back and I go, I'm a serial killer. I look like a serial <laughs> killer. Man. It's like, I wouldn't trust that person. And then, you know, only serial killers get on Greyhound buses. Of course, I get on a Greyhound bus for L.A. I could have been the Night Stalker for all you know. <laughs> Completely could have been. And the, the, Nikki's haircuts are a recurring theme in the yes, book as well. Yes, they are. You have visuals of it if you'd like, if you buy the book. Uh, let's get our last couple of callers in. This is Mark Christensen joining us via Zoom. Mark, you are on with... With Nikki Six, welcome. Thank you. First, Nikki, uh, I owe it to you and the boys and Molly Crew and White Snake for that Girls, Girls, Girls tour. My love of live music. So oh, that, that show kicked me in the face. That was a great love. tour. That was a great tour. Um, you've alluded to it a little bit as you, as the two of you have talked. But curious, you're on the desert island. Not an original question, but you're on the desert island. You can only take two albums, or as Eddie would say, CDs with you. What would they be and why? Diving Dogs. David Bowie, hands down one of the greatest records of all time. 
and it's not fair to say two records. So I'm just going to throw myself to the wolves. I'm going to say something and I'm going to miss out on like some of my, I want to say Aerosmith rocks, but I'm going to say wings band on the run. But now I want to say toys in the attic, (laughs) but like the first Sabbath record, it's not a fair question. No, not at all. Not at all. Let, while we're talking about other bands, uh, something just came to me that's in this book that <laughs> this band has a tremendously passionate fan base. So you better buckle in when people read oh, this book. Oh, no, man, I know. You, you, you talk about your dislike of Rush. Right. And it's not a personal thing. The no. music just didn't connect with you. It did connect. But you connect. actually have a line in the book where you're like, <laughs> if you start out saying that you're a fan of Rush, we're probably not going to be friends. We're not going to be friends. <laughs> and that comes to that that round table I do right. with my friends. That's the kind of stuff we do. So it was important to me to write this book and not have a like, clickbait in it. Right. Right. So I was like, I, I remember I, I'm sarcastic by nature first and then a bass player like it comes it comes first sarcasm comes first <laughs> gets me in trouble gets me in trouble online gets me in trouble with my wife all the time and um you know I, I wrote that in there and then uh alex my co-writer and the editor thought it was funny and i'm like i know eddie's gonna bring this up <laughs> well, it's in the book that's so i put it in the book <laughs> why did i put it in the book so i saw rush it was uh, kansas headlining it was either Queen or Rush next, and so it was the three, you know, the three of them. And Rush's first album was out, and that song "Working Man," yeah. that Cal, oh my God, that song's so great. Loved that record. And uh, Queen had just come out with "Killer Queen," so Queen was probably second on the bill. And um, then Rush put out "Fly By Night," and I'm like diving deeper into the dolls and you know that stuff. And they're bringing you by tour in the snow dog at nine minutes. And yeah, and I and I and so me and my friends had to make a decision. <laughs> you know, it's not. I I totally as a Rush fan, and we're still friends, right? Yeah, we're still we're good. We're good. And by the way, for you Rush fanatics out there, please. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I appreciated that because it's the honesty, and and Rush is an acquired taste. Let's be honest. It, notoriously, the band themselves would tell you there's people that love them and that just didn't get them. So yeah. it's all good. But I got the humor in it. I want to get our last uh, okay. our last p- person in before we run out of time. Real quickly, here's here's uh, Christine Bennett. Christine, you're our final caller viewer for Nikki Six. Go ahead, Christine. Hey, what's going on? It's a little. I I follow her on Instagram. My wife loves her. It's like a little mini Nikki. Is that a little mini Nikki in there? Look at that. Yeah. He says hi too. (laughs) So like I'll be like on Instagram and like like little mini me will like make commentaries. Now is that is that Nikki Six spelled the original way from the guy from Squeeze that you took the name from? You should give him that spelling. (laughs) Yeah, give him a different (laughs) just for variation. (laughs) That's actually like my I have that same jacket. (laughs) <laughs> Christine, yeah, we're short I, on time. What's your question? Okay, sorry. Okay, so my for, so my question for you is: when it comes to following a dream, whether it's come to music, acting, etc., what advice would comes to you? What comes to those trying to achieve the dream? So, something that I didn't do that I highly recommend: whatever you want to be or do. Can you imagine a guy who's like? this amazing like MVP player on a team and he, he never had any coaching, you know, he just kind of threw a ball around or, you know, kicked a ball sometimes between two trees and he ends up being the guy that kicks the final score and wins the Super Bowl. 
most of these people are trained and they spend their life in dedication. Um, I wish I had taken time when I was younger and taken music lessons and had a, a, I did take some writing classes at college once at Pierce college here in, uh, in California. Um, and, um, I, I got bad grades because the guy's like, your stuff doesn't rhyme, and I don't understand what you're talking about. You're crazy. So I quit, you know. But that was like an extreme case. But I guess what I'm saying is, if you want to be an actor, take acting lessons. You want to be a singer, take vocal lessons. You want to be in the entertainment business. You want to be uh, in the management company, you know, be, get involved on the bottom level. Do whatever it takes. Work your ass off. You don't just wake up and sell out Madison Square Garden. And some of us, like I outworked my peers, like I outworked them and maybe I have some natural talents in some way, but it took me years to become a really good bass player where I could have just taken bass lessons when I was younger and it would have, uh, I think, benefited me. Yeah, I could say the same thing. I have young kids come up to me and say, I want to do what you do. And I'm like, well, it took 38 years. It took working overnights when nobody yeah. was listening. It you better start sweeping floors. four years for That's no right. money. That's it took... Right. You know, a lot of rejection. It's not, yeah, you yeah. got to put the time in. And, and you got to start at the bottom and be yeah. okay with that and get rid of your ego. Like my uncle swept floors at Capitol Records and worked his way all the way up to being the president. Right. I mean, that's how it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's so much more in this book that we didn't get a chance to touch on. But one more thing I want to hit you with before we have to wrap here that I was really interested in. And you say that throughout the book, you're like, I can't believe that nobody picked up on this. And that's the lines, the makeup lines yeah. under your eyes. Yeah. You were really into football. You Loved were a it. good football player. And you, first of all, the Vikings used to hang at your house. Minnesota Vikings, purple uh, people. There's you. so much stuff in here. I'm, I'm bouncing around. It's all firing in my head. But yeah. Nikki's mom dated Richard Pryor, yep. which was around. Like, you'll read about all this in the book. But talk about the lines and the idea of doing that and taking that from football. I love football. I was obsessed with football. Uh, right when we went to print, I found a photo of myself in my football uniform. I couldn't believe it. And what I was, position again? Defensive uh, end? A defensive end, yeah. So you were, rushing, you were going after the quarterback. I loved killing the quarterback. Yeah. <laughs> I, loved it. I loved that contact. And um, I remember putting the stripes under my eyes. We were playing Santa Monica Civic because of football. And I like went on stage. It was like, I don't know. I didn't even think it out. I didn't really think like there's like uh this is a look or anything i don't even know why i ever did it a second time and then it just kind of became part of my thing now what's interesting is i don't think anybody else out there can put those stripes under their eyes and go on stage they're going to be like that's like paul stanley and the star on his eye but it's not like i mean it's not like really my idea i stole it from football right but in rock and roll, it's it's my my thing, I guess. Yeah, to this day, if you watch football, you know players do that because it reflects the sun. And That's right. They can't wear sunglasses, but you adopted it as very much an identifiable part of your look. Yeah, and and until you you say in the book, you can't believe nobody made that. Association. Nobody's ever ever said. I mean, did you ever think no, that? I didn't it, actually, and I love football, and I never really thought about it. Like I said, when I did it, it was just kind of I did it and went on stage and and. And uh, it wasn't like every night I did it, I was like, this is this is for football. It was your war paint, in a way. Is yeah. my war paint. That's what people would call it, is war paint. Is, is, 
as a football player, how good were you? Like, was, is there a chance that we could have been, instead of Nikki Six from Motley Crue, we could have been talking about Frank Ferrana, the star defensive end of some NFL team? Were you that good? I don't know because I was in junior high. So that's as far I, as you took it. I, I took it that far because then it was all about rock and roll after that. Right. Um, I loved it. Right. Um, never one that's afraid of taking a brick in the face. So, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't mind getting hit or, or returning the favor, and I really enjoyed it. But it was the strategy of football. And I still to this day, I, I know we're like a little short on time, but I will say, okay, so if this is the Super Bowl, it's like, oh, no, here comes the Nickyism. <laughs> Super Bowl, how do we work our all the way back to training camp? How are we going to win the Super Bowl? I always like football analogies constantly. My wife has this like really cool uh, subscription-based flower company as she started called Bouquet Box. And she'll be like talking about the company and I'll use football analogies. And she's like, I am going to kill you. <laughs> One more football analogy. <laughs> I'll use football analogies with our two-year-old. Look, you got to toughen up. <laughs> you got to go the extra mile. Got to go the extra mile. What are you thinking? <laughs> All right, listen, man. It's uh, it's so good to spend yeah. this time. You with too, you. man. This has been great. I'm glad that we could make this happen. Yeah, for sure. You said we, you know, we were talking on text. You got to do something cool, and I think yeah. we did. And I, I think the audience got some insights into this book. And again, just scratching the surface. There's so much more in here. The first twenty-one is out now. Also, a big mention that there's this oh, yes. out there, 6 a.m., The Hits, which is a compilation album with a new we, song. Well, we have a few new songs on it. we got a brand-new song called Penetrate, which is a little heavier, uh, like heavier 6 a.m. stuff. Got a song called Waiting on My Life, which we kind of leaned a little on the first Van Halen album, which was, like, really different for us, and that was fun. And then uh, the first 21, and then we did some... Uh, we did Skin, that song Skin, but we like re-recorded as a rock mix. That was a lot of fun and a few other things like that. Well, thank you to Nikki Six. That was a lot of fun to be back out in L.A. and back out at the L.A. studios and spend some face-to-face time with Nikki. Again, the entire interview you just heard is available as Pro Shot Video. Just go to the SiriusXM app and you can watch it if you are a subscriber. And be sure to listen to me every day on Volume, Sirius XM Channel 106, live 2 to 4 Eastern, nightly replays 10 to midnight Eastern, and full shows, audio, video, and more anytime you want on the app. Again, thanks to Nikki. Check out his book. And I'll see you guys next Thursday for another all-new episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Thank you for listening. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.